Good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at our Southwood campus, and I want to welcome you to Grace. If you're new here, uh, we're especially glad that you've joined us this morning as we worship our God and as we study His Word. And you've joined us as we have really, we've reached the end, the very end of our series this fall of looking through, reading week by week, chapter by chapter, the book of Revelation. Uh, the final book that we have in our scripture, the book that contains countless prophecies and promises about the days to come, this knowledge about the future that the Lord has given to us as a gift, as a blessing. And he's given this to us not just so that we would have a knowledge, but that that knowledge, that future knowledge would transform our present understanding of how do we live, how do we think, how do we speak, how do we act in the here and now based on what is to come. And one of the things that we've seen time and again as we've read through this book chapter by chapter is that God uh, has a plan, right? One of the things that is abundantly clear is that the Lord knows what is coming, that the Lord is in control of all things and that it's all moving towards his perfect culminating redemption of creation, and so this morning, we're reading Revelation chapter 19. So if you have your Bible and want to turn there, if you want to go there in your phone, Revelation chapter 19 is really the, the, the building kind of crescendo, culminating moment where we are going to see the return of Jesus Christ, who's going to emerge in splendor and in victory, who's going to lay waste to his enemies and, and usher in the perfect eternal kingdom of God. That's what we see in Revelation 19. And it's really encapsulated in two different banquets that we're going to see presented. There's going to be a wedding celebration of the Lamb, and then there's going to be a great banquet of God. And both of these celebrations, kind of both of these banquets, these gatherings, have very important purposes for the people of God, but also for the enemies of God. And when we talk about these banquets, when we talk about these grand occasions, it, it makes me think about the banquets or the big to-dos I've been a part of here in, in our lives, right? All of us maybe at some point have been to an awards banquet or we've been to some like anniversary dinner or something along the lines of like, wow, this is celebrating and this is something that's really important. And one of the biggest things that we go to in our normal lives is, is to weddings, right? Weddings are generally super awesome, these big celebratory things. My wife and I, uh, because we've been, you know, we've got a lot of friends that have been married. Uh, we led, we've led in our premarital ministry called Merge for a number of years. And so we've been to a lot of those weddings. I've officiated a lot of weddings. We were in college ministry for eight years. And Aggies, as you know, love getting married. It's just like the thing to do, which is great. Good for you. Some of you are like, yes, Lord, haste the day. And that's great. And we've been to a lot of weddings. So, you know, over the last, you know, 10 years, we've probably spent about six months of our lives just at weddings. And what I've learned is that weddings are pretty predictable, right? Like there's kind of a normal rhythm and flow to them. Like it's three or four hours. You show up. There's, a, there's some sort of, you know, ceremony. You go to a reception where there's like food uh, and there's probably like music and dancing and there's little things that people do and they cut cake and they have a first dance and you know, you kind of know what to expect and there's other things that happen later in the ceremony or in the reception that my wife and I just don't go to anymore because we have small children. We're like, bye. And so we, but we know kind of what to expect. We know how it rolls. But my wife and I actually went to a wedding about 10 years ago that just defied all the norms. Whereas I normally kind of know what to expect and every wedding kind of follows the same rhythm, even though I'm sure your wedding will be the most special wedding ever. So not your wedding, but other weddings, very generic, kind of have know what to expect. There was one wedding we went to that really was unbelievable. In 2011, we went to this wedding for a friend of Susan's that she had grown up. And 
uh, we show up and we're just, we're walking to what I can only describe as like basically a Roman emperor's throne room. Like it was this place called the Corinthian down in the, down in the Houston area. And it was magnificent. And we are surrounded, I mean, there's like, there's a full orchestra that's performing during the ceremony. Uh, we're surrounded by these like giant wedding, like these flower arrangements that were just magnificent. We knew someone that was part of like the lead, the planning process for the wedding. And they actually told us as we we're like admiring all these flowers, they're like, yeah, actually every flower arrangement was $15,000. And we were like, what? That's like two of my cars, like every, and for each one. And there's dozens of them around the room. And so we see the ceremony, it's great. They move on to the reception, they start turning over the room. For the reception, uh, you know, we have like this like lead-in time and they set up all these tables. They bring in a 10-piece, like the best wedding band I've ever seen in my life. Uh, we have a five-course meal, uh, this like just this lavish spread, all this stuff going on. When they did their first dance, one of like the, I think really captures it in a moment examples is when they did their first dance they danced to some like country song I don't I don't listen to country music but it was a song that people have heard or whatever and they had the guy come and perform it like they had the actual artist who wrote and performed the song he came and did their first dance song and like, again, I had no idea. People knew who he was. I had no idea but they were like no he's a guy and I was like oh my gosh and so that's <laughs> amazing he gets up, he does this thing, we just continue the party, it's going on, 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 just hour after hour after hour. We're there like four or five hours, I'm like, this is amazing, this was the most amazing wedding. Wow, what an experience, what a memory. Midnight rolls around, we're like, okay, surely it's over. The couple appears in this giant balcony area, they had the second floor area that they'd apparently been working on for hours, and they're like, hey, come to the after party, and we're like, What? is going on and so everyone goes upstairs they had decked it all out it's disco theme they have a light up dance floor and they've got like new snacks new drinks like all these new things you'd play all these casino games where you would win money that had their faces on it and you would spend that money on raffle tickets that would then win you ipads uh, that you would then put in your already loaded down swag bag and all said and done we were there for eight hours and I could have, I could have stayed. Like, like, they had to force us out of the building after eight hours because it was so lavish. It was so extravagant. It was so amazing. And what's so incredible to me is that my wife and I, we did nothing to plan that wedding. We didn't, we didn't pay for anything at that wedding. Praise the Lord. Uh, like we. We just received, we didn't fill out an application. We didn't request a seat. We didn't enter into a lottery. Like we just received an invitation. And we simply accepted what we could have never achieved, never achieved on our own. And when the Lord begins to describe in Revelation 19, as he describes these massive, amazing banquets, the thing we have to keep in mind is that this is a celebration. These are these moments, these culminating celebratory moments that are not anything that we earn. It's nothing we apply for. It is something that the Lord invites us to by his grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. Our invitation to the wedding celebration of Lamb, our invitation to these culminating moments of the Lord, this, this eternal paradise, it is simply entirely dependent upon our position in Christ, not on what we do, not on what we accomplish. That's what we have to keep in mind because the Lord is going to unveil this plan he has, this magnificent plan he has for us 
But we need to remember, it's not because we're better. It's not because we did the right thing. It's not because we did enough or checked enough boxes. It's simply because God is good and gracious and merciful, and he loves us. That's why he does these things. That's why he's inviting us to be a part of eternal paradise with himself. And so as we look at this wedding celebration of the Lamb, and we'll look at the great banquet, we'll see distinctions. We'll see sort of how the Lord is using these moments for his people, but also for his enemies. But we're starting in verse 1, and we're going to see that John is, he's coming out of chapter 18, where he described the destruction of Babylon, this, this, you know, this human institution that was rebelling against the Lord. And it's, it's been laid waste to, like it's been destroyed. And so John is celebrating that. Uh, the people of heaven, the people of God are celebrating the fact that his enemies are being, you know, vanquished. And John says that after these things, verse 1, I heard what sounded like the loud voice of a vast throng in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and just. The term hallelujah simply means praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It's a term that shows up a lot in our Old Testament. It only shows up right here in Revelation 19 in all of the New Testament. It's what scholars will call the hallelujah chorus. We're going to see it four times in Revelation 19. It's the only time where we see this term, this this charge to praise the Lord in all of our New Testament. And why are they praising him? It's because they recognize that salvation belongs to him, that glory belongs to him, that power belongs to him, that God's justice has prevailed. His judgment is true. It's just. His enemies have been vanquished. So they continue in verse two. They say that he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his servants poured out by her own hands. So then a second time the crowd shouted, hallelujah, the smoke. Smoke rises from her forever and ever. God's victory is imminent. His victory is is already in process. There's still going to be a little bit more battle. There's a little more defeating of his enemies that's going to come at the end of this chapter, at the beginning of chapter 20. But for the most part, we're seeing that the Lord's power and authority is prevailing. And so the people of heaven, the people of God are shouting, hallelujah, praise the Lord. So verse three, or sorry, verse four, the 24 elders and the four living creatures threw themselves to the ground and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, let it be, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, all you who fear him, both the small and the great. God deserves all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. Hallelujah. And then I heard what sounded like the voice of a vast throng, like the roar of many waters, like loud crashes of thunder. And they were shouting, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the all-powerful reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory because the wedding celebration of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She was permitted to be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we're introduced to this idea, this wedding celebration of the Lamb. It's a moment that that God is inviting his people to come and to celebrate what he has done, to celebrate his work, his accomplishment. And this is in line with with much of Scripture. Jesus Christ is referred to as the bridegroom multiple times, that that he's the bridegroom to the church, his bride. 
And this makes a lot of sense, uh, not just in the analogies and metaphors of Scripture, but, but it helps if we understand a little bit about the historical context of what marriage looked like or what weddings looked like in the ancient tradition, right? In this day, we kind of know, okay, you date for a while, you get engaged, and then you get married, like, and then you're married and whatever. Like, the, that's kind of the progression. In those days, it was a little different. So you would start off, rather than going through a dating process, right, there was uh, generally, typically, arranged marriages where the families were involved. A lot of times the parents were involved in kind of determining who's going to be marrying who, who are you going to get paired up with. Something that maybe some of us today, we hear about, we're like, oh my goodness, that's terrible, I'm so glad. But others of us are like, that'd be great, please. Yeah, could, could you? Uh, heck, I'll do it for you if you want. Like, just send me an email. Um, but that's, you know, that sounds, maybe to some of us, like, it'd be great. And then as a parent, I'm even like, yeah, you know, maybe I would be on board with it. You know, I'll get you your sippy cup and your wife. Like, boom. Like, it's just kind of, let's just take care of all of it. And that's how it operated in the ancient tradition. They, the parents, the family was involved, and they would select the, the spouses, and there would be this kind of extended betrothal process, the, or betrothal period. And during that time, as the individuals got older, as the betrothed got older, uh, the, the husband, or you know, the, the soon-to-be husband, it was his responsibility to prepare a place for his wife, for his new family to exist and to flourish and to thrive. And so often he would build a room onto sort of their family home. They had kind of these little compound type things where the whole family would live, multiple generations of the same family. And so the son or the, the you know, husband-to-be, the groom, uh, he would build a space, physically build a space for uh, his family to live, for them to enjoy one another and enjoy the fellowship of the broader family. And after he was done preparing that, what would happen is he would then go and surprise his bride and whisk her away to the wedding celebration. So it's kind of three phases. The first was betrothal and selection. The second was this sort of surprise, gotcha, let's go get married, uh, right? And like, oh, let me get my nails done. Like real quick, you know, whatever, give me a little bit of time. But he'd whisk her away and they would have this then third phase of this wedding celebration that would be, you know, many times about a week long where it'd be, you know, different feasts and celebrations. They would have the actual ceremony and then they'd, you know, they would just party. That's, that's how it operated back in those days. And so it makes sense when, when Jesus refers to himself or when scripture refers to Christ as the bridegroom, it's with that sort of process in mind. And so when we talk about how Jesus is, is the bridegroom of the church, his bride, we, we have this sort of play out in scripture where we see that the church is, is selected by the Lord. Right? He's told us that. If you read Ephesians 1, he says that before the foundations of the world, I've, I've chosen you and I've, I've called you to myself. All of us who, who belong to the family of God, we've been called by him through the power of his Holy Spirit who brought us to repentance, has brought us to faith in Jesus Christ. And as we've been chosen, as we've been selected, Jesus has gone. We're gonna read in just a moment in John 14 where he says, I, I'm going and I'm preparing a place for you in my father's house. I'm building on, I'm adding these rooms so that we can enjoy company, the company and the fellowship of one another for all of eternity. And then there's a moment that comes where Jesus returns and he snatches up his bride. We read about it earlier in the book of Revelation. We read about it in 1 Thessalonians, this, this moment of rapture where Jesus descends and he's in the air and he catches up his people unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. We're caught up to be with him. And then what we're seeing here is, is the promise of the moment of the celebration, the third phase 
when everyone gathers together and we celebrate what God has done, we celebrate the perfect union of Christ with this bride, the church. And now there's conversation around, okay, and discussion in, in biblical scholarship around, okay, what is the exact identity of this bride in view? And we're gonna see another reference to the bride of Christ in Revelation 21 that's referring to the new Jerusalem the, the, where all the people of God are gathered. Uh, so there's discussion around, is this all believers ever? Is this simply uh, Christians, who, people who came to faith in Christ during the church age, like during our current age? Does this include the people that, that come to faith during the tribulation, that die in the tribulation, or people that live through all of it? And, and there's discussion, there's debate, there's conversation around it. I think the clearest evidence points towards this being, this bride being the church, the gathered people of God who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ specifically. But regardless of the exact identity or the exact composition of this bride, what we know is that the Lord has a purpose and a plan for his people, all of his people. And we have hope in that. We have encouragement in that. And John, is, even as he's hearing this description, he's, he's, he's amazed, he's astounded by what is being revealed. When the angel tells him, write the following, blessed are those who are invited, who are invited to the banquet at the wedding celebration of the Lamb. And he also said, these are the true words of God. He says, this is, this is a blessing, this is an honor, this is, this is an incredible gift to those who've been invited to the celebration. And so I threw myself down at his feet to worship him, but he said, don't do this. I'm only a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony about Jesus. So worship God, for the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John is very honest, and I love it that we have these moments of, of, of clarity, of transparency that we had at the beginning of the book and even here at the end, where John is he's so overwhelmed by the good news of what God has planned that at times he is tempted to throw himself and worship at the feet of angels, of these messengers, and both at the beginning of the book and even here, the angels are always like, no, 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 like don't, don't do that. I'm not the one worthy of your praise. I'm not the one worthy of your worship. That belongs to the Lord. And I'm just a messenger, right? I'm just a, co I'm just a fellow servant along with you. Praise God. Praise God for what he's doing. And there's discussion around this, this final phrase is interesting that he talks about how you should worship God for the testimony about Jesus as the spirit of prophecy. And the Greek here is a little tricky where is this, you know, it could be, we could translate this testimony about Jesus. It could also be the testimony of, like from Jesus and it's the spirit of prophecy. And so is it saying that all prophecy is about Jesus or is it saying that all true prophecy is from Jesus? I think there's a compelling case here that, that simply what's in view is a, a tr the trinity of God, the triune nature of God that he's, he's bringing to light, God the Father, Christ the Son, and then not just the kind of the aura of prophecy, but the actual Holy Spirit who empowers and proclaims the truth of the Lord. But either way, what we see is the angel reminding John of maybe what we sometimes lose sight of, which is that when we're confronted with the plans and the purposes of God, it is reason to praise him, to praise him, to knowing, for the fact that we know that God's people are destined to party. I mean, this is really, this is the takeaway. 
that we are destined for a party. And I think that speaks to us on a really deep level because I know even just as a kid, like the promise of a party was like, that was the ultimate like inspiration, right? That was the ultimate motivating factor. Like if I knew at school that we had, there was a pizza party based upon if we like sold enough candy bars, right? Or if we like behaved ourselves or turned in enough tests. I remember there was a time in second grade where our teacher told us we had this kind of behavior chart system, right? You could be green or yellow or red. And so, you know, I remember at one point our teacher was probably just worn out and she's like, look, if you guys, if everyone can just stay out of the red for the next six weeks, at the end of the six weeks, you'll get a pizza party. So just, just don't go in the red. And as soon as she told us that, as soon as she told us that there was a pizza party awaiting for those, those chosen few who, who followed the commands of her mouth and you know, obeyed the desires of her heart, we were, we were in. We were all in. And she made it where like, we all had to behave like none of us could go in the red or we would all lose the pizza party. And so I can't tell you how fast we became a very tight-knit, self-policing group. Like we immediately were like, Timmy, you better stop running in the hallway or so help me, right? Like I need that pepperoni, man. I need it. Because we knew, oh man, there's a pizza party on the horizon. So it was the incentive that we needed to change everything about the way that we lived. God has told us, he says, I have a party in mind. I've got this celebration that is coming. So live in light of that. Carry that hope with you. It's the hope that Jesus gave to his disciples when he told them in John 14 that they shouldn't let their hearts be distressed, that just as they believe in God, they should believe also in me, for there are many dwelling places in my Father's house. Otherwise, I would have told you because I'm going away to make ready a place for you. Jesus, this is what's coming. This is what's on the horizon. This is what I'm doing on your behalf. I'm preparing a place for you in my Father's house. He's using this, this wedding metaphor. He says, and if I go and I make ready a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me so that where I am, you may be too. And you know the way where I'm going. This incredible promise, this incredible offering of hope. Now, right after this, one of his disciples is like, but Jesus, we don't know. How do we get there? I don't know. And Jesus is like, guys, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. The way of the Father is through me. And he reminds them, that it's not about, you know, choosing the right paths on an actual road. It's not about checking the right boxes in their behavior modification. It says it's all about, do you know me? Do you belong to me? Do you trust in me? That's, that's what you need. That's the requirement for entry. Trust in me. And if we really grab a hold of that, if we really believe in the work of Jesus Christ, what it does is it brings a peace into our lives that is worth enjoying and also extending to the world around us. It's a comfort to know that God has made a way for us when we had no way. It's a comfort for us to recognize the beauty of our gospel, that we were all broken by sin, that we've all been born as, as children of wrath, enemies of God. And yet while we were his enemies, while we were dead in our sin, Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us could live, to die the death that we all deserve because of our failure. And then he rose on the third day to prove that his power and authority is greater than what previously held us captive. And so he says that if you believe in me, if you trust in me, you're free from sin, you're free from condemnation. 
You're still going to make mistakes. It's still a process of being transformed into his image, and yet we can trust that every step of the way, God has us. We belong to the Lord, and nothing can snatch us out of our Father's hands. Nothing can separate us from the Father through the love of Jesus Christ. And that is a peace that we can carry with us. It's a peace that Paul told the church in Philippi to, to to grab a hold of and never let go of. He says, I don't want you to be anxious about anything, but instead in every situation through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says, take your concerns. Don't ignore the concerns, right? Don't, don't pretend that nothing's ever hard. Don't be ignorant or don't be naive. It says, but, but take that and bring it to the Lord. And you can trust that he hears you. You can trust that he's in control. And knowing that he has you in his hands, that is what will guard you. That is a peace that surpasses all human earthly understanding. And it guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We'll never be able to live lives apart from suffering, right? Suffering will always, it's just a part of our existence. Jesus himself promises disciples. He says, you're gonna suffer. If you follow me, you're gonna suffer. You're gonna be rejected. You're gonna be persecuted just as I was. Suffering is inevitable. We'll never live apart from suffering, but we can live above that suffering. We can live in such a way that that suffering and that pain is in the right perspective. We put it in its proper place. We hand it to the Lord. We say, that's not gonna define me. That's not not what's gonna end me. I can trust that God has a plan. It doesn't make it easy. I still mourn with those who mourn. I still weep with those who weep. But I can trust that God is in control. And that is a peace that is unique to the followers of Jesus Christ. And that's a peace that we can share about. I think one of the most powerful testimonies we'll ever have is we go into a holiday season where maybe we're talking with friends or family that are far from the Lord. One of the most powerful testimonies we have as followers of Jesus Christ is being able to express the peace that we have in Christ. That even though our life might be crazy, even though events might be wild, even though there might be uncertainty or fear, frustration in certain pockets, again, we don't ignore that, we don't dismiss it, but we can proclaim that God is still good, that he's in control, and his peace can reign supreme and guard my heart and my mind, even when life is chaos. And if I'm able to express that to those who would listen, as a powerful witness to the peace that God alone provides. And as we carry this peace, what's impressive is not just that God gives us a comfort through the peace of Christ, but he also gives us an urgency to our living because he goes on and doesn't just describe the wedding celebration, but he describes this great banquet, which is very, very different. If you'll read with me in verse 10, or sorry, 11, John sees that the heaven that heaven opened, and here came a white horse, and the one riding it was called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and goes to war. And his eyes are like a fiery flame, and there are many diadem crowns on his head, and he has a name written that no one knows except himself. So John is reaching this, this culminating moment where Jesus Christ is emerging. He's coming out of heaven, and he's, he's, he's coming down to earth. 
And he's coming to wage war. And he's using these descriptors and some of these attributes that we saw at the beginning of the book because John saw Jesus Christ in the throne room of God. But now we see that Jesus is leaving the throne room and he's coming to earth to establish a kingdom, to, to conquer, to defeat his enemies. He's the one who is faithful. He's the one who is true. He has all power and authority representing those diadem crowns. He has this name that, that no one knows except himself, which again, there's a lot of discussion and debate around what exactly does that mean? I think the, the clearest kind of case for this or the clearest explanation is that a name reveals a lot about a person, about their attributes or, or who they are, or what, what they're doing. And, and what we're seeing here is this, this revelation, this reminder that as, as much as God has allowed us to understand himself and his son, Jesus Christ, that there's still elements of who Jesus is and what he can do that defy human comprehension, that defy our, our comprehension here and now. But he's coming fully revealed in his full splendor, in his full might, in his full glory, in his full authority. And he's dressed in clothing, <laughs> excuse me, He's dressed in clothing dipped in blood. He's called the word of God. And the armies that are in heaven, they're dressed in white and they're clean fine linen and they were following him on white horses. He's coming in, in, in the, the clothes of a conqueror described in Isaiah 63. He's coming as the one true perfect king who's gonna establish an unending kingdom. He's the word of God. He's the one who's he's bringing the army with them. And from his mouth extends a sharp sword so that with it he can strike the nations. And he'll rule them with an iron rod. And he stomps the winepress of the furious wrath of God, the all-powerful. And he has a name written on his clothing and on his thigh, saying, King of kings and Lord of lords. We're seeing all these allusions, again, not just to the beginning of the book, but also these allusions to the Old Testament prophecies about the perfect conquering king that he rules with a rod of iron. We see this in Psalm 2, right? The clothing dipped in blood, Isaiah 63. He's stomping out this wine press. He's, he's pouring out the wrath of God. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, the po ultimate power, ultimate authority. He's coming to set up the kingdom of God that will not end. And so then I saw an angel, verse 17, standing in the sun, and he shouted in a loud voice to all the birds flying high in the sky, come, gather around for the great banquet of God. So there's already been this, this blessing of the invitation to the wedding celebration of the Lamb that was given to the people of God. Now we see this invitation to the birds of the air to come to the great banquet, which is what? It's an opportunity for them to eat their fill of the flesh of kings, the flesh of generals, the flesh of powerful people, the flesh of horses and those who ride them, and the flesh of all people, both free and slave and small and great. Stark contrast to the wedding celebration of the Lamb. There's this picture of ultimate defeat, destruction against the enemies of God, both great and small, from the highest king to the lowest servant. God is saying, once again, your rebellion is wrong and you're gonna lose. Right, this is, this is spoken about the enemies who have been living in, in complete rejection of who God is, of what he's promised. They've, they've refused to repent, they refuse to turn to him. They've refused to acknowledge his supremacy. They've refused to acknowledge his authority. And so God is saying, look, my power is still complete. My authority is still unquestioned. So you're going to be crushed under my feet. I'm going to lay waste to the kingdoms and the little, 
you know, things that you've built for yourself, it's, it's going to be done away with. And ultimately, really what they're getting is exactly what they want. These people who have rejected not just the power of God, but they are rejecting, they are running away from the presence of God. Says, God says, yeah, you're going to lose out then on my presence for all of eternity. That's what you get. You get what you want. So then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to do battle with the one who rode the horse with his army, this last hurrah. But then the beast was seized, and along with him the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf, signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, those who worshipped his image, and both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire, burning with sulfur. They're defeated. And we're going to read in Revelation 20 in a couple weeks uh, about the ultimate final defeat, not just of these agents of Satan, but of Satan himself. And, and it's, it's a tragic end but it's the right end for the enemies of God. Because whereas God has destined and preserved his people for celebration, God's enemies, they are destined and preserved to perish. That is the promise that God has made because he is just, because he is right, because he's faithful, because he's true. We don't rejoice for the suffering of the enemies of God, but we rejoice in the justice of God that is right that is correct, that is righteous. That's why we rejoice. That's why we can take heart and comfort in reading difficult passages like this because we recognize that God's word is absolute, that his authority is gonna win out, that his supremacy is unquestioned, that his enemies will not prevail. And it's something that, that we long for, right? We want to see things made right. We want to see the kingdom of God established. We want to see the enemies of God defeated. That, that there's something to that, that because we're made in his image, that we desire to see things made right. I see this with my kids all the time, where if we're watching a movie or a show, they're always worried. Like, if there's bad guys in the show, like, we were watching Toy Story the other day. As we were watching Toy Story, our three-year-old, he's like, oh, those are bad guys, right? There's this, like, wacko kid, Sid, and he's, like, torturing toys and He's, he's just a creative kid. Like, I feel for him, honestly. But, like, he's, you know, he's just living, he's got a rough home. He's living his best life. But, but he's a bad guy. And, and so my son, our three-year-old, he's like, oh, he's like, that's a bad guy. And we're like, yeah. And so his, he, they want to know, one, like, are the good guys going to win? Which we're like, yeah, hey, guess what? Good guys are going to win. It's going to be all right. He's like, all right, all right. But now our three-year-old takes it to the next step, and he goes, whoa. He goes, is the bad guy going to die? I'm like, whoa. This is a toy story, man. He won't. I mean, Lion King, we'll talk about it. Right? But like this, you know, in this case, no. <laughs> he won't be killed. And that's really for the best, right? But, but there's something in him that he's like, I want to see, I want to see full defeat of these enemies. And, and there's a hope that's given to us as people of God to know that God's will will prevail, that his power will be supreme. It's what Paul reminded the church of in Corinth, the church in Corinth, he says that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. He says this is the miracle of Christ, that just as through Adam, sin and death entered the world and broken, he says in the same way through simply the work of one person, through the work of Jesus Christ, there is resurrection now for those who have died. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. So Christ, the first fruits, but then when Christ comes, those who belong to him. He's referring to the rapture. He's talking about how we'll be caught up and, and with Christ, resurrected from the dead because of our faith in Jesus Christ. But then Paul goes on and he continues beyond the rapture. He talks about what we just read in Revelation 19. He says that then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he's brought to an end all rule, all authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be eliminated is death. This is the power of Christ. Not only are we proclaimers of the peace and the comfort that comes through Christ, but we are proclaimers and witnesses of the power of Christ to save us from death itself. We are proclaiming the power of resurrection in Jesus Christ. That's what we are witnesses to. That's why we are ambassadors, so that we can go into this world and we can proclaim not just the the love of God, but so that we can proclaim the power and might and splendor of our Lord. This is why Peter told the early church, a group of individuals who were suffering and being persecuted, they were, they were facing incredible hardship because of their faith. He says, you need to always be setting Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. He says, give this answer in a gentle way, in a way that is loving and kind and compassionate. But you need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that you possess, to explain why it is that you follow Jesus, why it is that you've given your life to him and him alone. And when we talk about the hope of Christ, we have to talk about not just the peace and the comfort that comes from the Lord, but we talk about his might, his splendor, his power that is evident, his power that is then given to us through the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer, who empowers us and equips us to share about who God is. And so as we walk into this holiday season, I, I don't know exactly where we're headed. Some of us are going into a really fun, we're excited about the gatherings that we have for Thanksgiving or for Christmas. Others of us, we've got fears or fr- frustrations or concerns about them. They're not always ideal. But what I know is that the spheres of influence we've been given, I know that the relationships that God has appointed to us, that all of them carry a divine potential, an eternal potential that God has put us in these places with these people so that we can proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done on all our behalf. So we prayerfully ask the Lord, God, give me opportunities to be a witness to the peace that you provide, God, to the power you've displayed. We walk into these moments asking the Lord to embolden us a spirit, not of fear and timidity, but he's given us a spirit of boldness and power so that we might proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the hope that we hold on to. That's the hope that we share. And as we close and worship this morning, we're singing one more song, and it's all about this hope that we have. Hallelujah, Christ will come again. And as we sing this, it's, it's a song, maybe for some of us, we need to just be singing for ourselves, that we need to, you know, our next step is really just, just grabbing a hold of the hope and holding fast to the hope that we have in Christ. Some of us, that's what we need, to walk into the next season of life, the next few weeks, and we need to just hold fast for our own sake to the hope that Christ provides. 
So we're going to sing these words over ourselves. This is a reminder for our hearts and minds. But for others of us, it's not just a song we're singing for our own sake. It's a song that we're singing for the sake of those that we're about to go see. It's a hope that we hold on to, and it's a hope that we share. And we prepare ourselves to have those conversations, to be bold, to take a stand, not in an antagonistic or cruel way, but with all gentleness and all understanding, we provide why we hope in Christ. That's the opportunity we have. So as we prepare to sing about the hope of Christ, let's pray and ask the Lord to show us where it is he's calling us to be his witnesses. God, we thank you that you've given us, Lord, a, a purpose beyond ourselves. That God, yes, we can enjoy your presence. God, we can enjoy your grace and your love, but Lord, also, you have called us to not simply enjoy and receive, but God, you have called us to extend this hope. God, to explain this love. God, you've called us to, to carry the, the truth of the gospel on the tip of our tongues. So Lord, we pray that as we move into this season of, of maybe seeing friends or family that we don't normally see, that God, that you would give us eyes to recognize the, the moments that you've appointed, the opportunities that you've brought up for us to be your witnesses and your ambassadors. So if you would take a moment now and just ask the Lord, say, God, show me what you have for me as I move into this season. God, show me, where is it that maybe, maybe I just need to hold fast. I need to set aside some time to be with you or, or to call my friends who love you. God, show me, where is it maybe that I just need to shore up my own hope in Christ over the coming month? But for others of us, we say, God, I, I'm steadfast in that hope, and God, I, I need you to show me the, the opportunities that you've created, that you've set for me to share it, for me to extend that hope, to proclaim that truth, that Jesus saves, that salvation and power and glory and honor belong to you. God, show me where those moments are. Empower me through the work of your spirit to step in boldly. Ask him for that right now.